Welcome to Financially Free Podcast with your host, Nay Torres. One of the reasons Nay could retire when he was 25 years old is because he was coached by the best. And now through this podcast, so can you. Mr. Victor Minash, I'm really, really excited today because Victor is one of my mentors. I don't know if you know this, Victor, but you, I actually listen to your podcast every day. Victor has a podcast and he's one very smart person. Can you tell us, Victor, a little bit about you and your background? Well, great to be here, Nay. And yes, I got into the world of real estate investing from a different path. It was not the usual path. I started my career in the world of technology. I started my career as an electrical engineer designing microprocessors. So if you ever made a phone call in North America after 1991, about 52% of the phone calls in North America were processed by a chip that I designed. If you've flown on an Airbus aircraft, the seatback displays where you watch the movies and the TV shows, that display has my microprocessor in it. If you've ever used a Wi-Fi access point from Cisco or from Apple, that access point has a processor <laughs> that I was responsible for. And the list goes on and on and on. And about 2009... I was working on a project in Japan. I was leading an engineering team de designing chips that were used in cell phones and data cards and things like that. And we were building a new cellular network in Japan. And I was literally tra traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks. And it was burning me out. I mean, it was a long trip. I mean, it's 13 hours in the air. You know, forget about the time zones. And uh, I just wasn't spending time with my family. It was burning me out. And so at that point, I resigned my position as vice president of engineering and decided to make a hard left turn in my career and go into real estate investing on a full-time basis. So that was 2009. And okay, very here we are today. <laughs> Can I ask you something? Because uh, I have the same problem. Uh, how, do you, how long did you last with traveling 13 hours there every time? Well, it's, it's, uh, we did that, did that for almost two years. Uh, wow, that's amazing. Every couple of weeks. So I made, I don't know, 20 trips to Tokyo in a year and a half and uh, told my boss, I, you know, I just couldn't go, to, I couldn't stomach the idea of having to catch a four minute connection through Shinjuku Station uh, <laughs> in Tokyo. <laughs> I, I, I also have the same problem. I, I've traveled to Europe this year probably around six or seven times. And what I, I didn't know is that you you kind of go crazy because jet lag when you go once a year it's just nice even fun but it takes me like two weeks to just get acclimatized you don't you don't sleep at night it, your whole sleep cycle goes crazy and that's that really is it's a big toll to pay you know burns oh. you out did you actually get burned out what I found was on a 13-hour flight, you can actually get about seven hours sleep. So it's easier for yep. me to fly to Japan than it is to fly to Europe because a flight to Europe is maybe an eight or nine-hour flight and you take off in the evening, you arrive the next morning. So you lose a whole night's sleep and maybe if you're lucky, you get two hours of poor quality sleep. So you're really wrecked the next day and it takes you several days to recover, like you said. I found that on a 13-hour trip to Tokyo, I leave in the morning, I arrive in the evening, uh, so I'll go have dinner, go get to my hotel. I've slept seven hours on a 13-hour flight, so I'm usually pretty well adjusted by the next day. But still, it's very hard on the body, and it got tiresome, I have to say. But, but you had to come back home, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, okay, very well, Victor. So that was an impressive, impressive introduction. So you get into real estate on 2009. And I understand your first investment was in Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, no, my first investment was local. Um, my first international investment was in Phoenix. And we'll talk about that one in a, in a minute. And, uh, you know, you lived in Phoenix for a number of years. And uh, surprising, we didn't run into each other at Ezria, but uh, love the Phoenix market. And at some point, would love to get back into the Phoenix market. Uh, but I started locally here in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital. And we have a, a micro market of embassy staff, parliamentary staff, military officers who are here on a medium-term basis. And so they're looking for an executive suite type product, a 12-month unfurnished lease is of no use to them, and spending four grand a month at a suite hotel is of no use to them because it's above their housing allowance. So I figured out what the market price was, exactly how much rent they could afford based on their housing allowance, and decided to deliver a product that I generated a good profit on at that price point within walking distance of Parliament. So that that's where I started in real estate, is taking a very focused business approach to solving a very particular problem. And that was, you know, those roughly 3,000 people through, you know, coming through the nation's capital every year looking for that particular product. So I had the market sized and what the price point was. And it was a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business. And that's where I started. What what kind of margins did you have in that one? Because let me let me tell you this, I'm right now going to Utrecht in Netherlands. And I'm looking starting to invest in, in Netherlands because the financing is just amazing, even better than the U.S. And I see exactly that niche of short-term, uh, medium-term rentals, let's call it that way. What were your mar margins back then? And why did you say it's a so-so business, not like an excellent business? Well, I think there's a number of things that have changed. Number one, when I started, Airbnb didn't really exist. So today, approximately 20-25% of Airbnb's business is medium-term stays. It's not just short-term nightly stays. So Airbnb is providing a very strong platform, and there's a lot of folks in the short-term rental business that are also willing to rent on a medium-term basis. So I think there's a lot more competition today than there was when I started. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that if you look at, when I look at the, the return on capital, my market's expensive. The Ottawa market's quite expensive. And so I was tying up a lot of capital for pretty decent return, but it wasn't as good as I could get, for example, investing in Phoenix. So I started to sell my product here in the Ottawa market and did very well with that and started buying, re redeploying the capital south of the border because let's not forget, we're talking about 2010, 11, 12, when the market was so distressed in many, many parts of the United States that you could literally buy things for a third of construction cost. And at that point, you say to yourself, well, I've got way more upside than downside. And this is probably the opportunity of a, of a lifetime, which it was. It, indeed, it was. I remember our, my cap rates back then in a single family home was 20%. Yeah, absolutely. No Wow. Turnover asset twenty percent. That was crazy. Uh, do you think we're going to see days like that again? Well, I don't think so, unless there's some other debt crisis. I mean, we, people talk about it as being a real estate crisis. I don't consider it having been a real estate crisis. It was a debt crisis, and the fact that the banks, on a very large scale, became almost insolvent, they really had to tighten their lending practices. So what happened was there was no credit available, and that limited 
the buyers in the marketplace to cash buyers. So if your only buyers are cash buyers and you've got a whole lot of sellers, prices can only do one thing and that's prices go down because there's more sellers than buyers. When lending opened up again, prices restored to pretty much where they were in 2007, which is kind of proof that it was a, a, a liquidity issue, a debt issue, more so than a real estate issue. It was an artificial crash created by some very poor lending practices. And, you know, the banks needed to get their act together. And I think for the most part, they have. Question is, will there be another debt bubble? And I think there will. And will it have a similar catastrophic effect on the debt markets? My personal belief is that the next big bubble to burst is going to be sovereign debt. And by sovereign debt, we're talking about governments. Governments printing too much money, especially if they're borrowing money in foreign currencies. That's a killer. Uh, you know, Argentina has been borrowing money in U.S. dollars. Turkey has been borrowing money and denominated in both euros and U.S. dollars. And when those countries tip over, you're going to see a ripple through the financial markets that I think is going to be hard for some markets to recover. Yeah, I, I went through one of those in Ecuador. We destroy our currency. And that's an interesting podcast for some other day. But, uh, yeah. but uh, I mean, basically, you run for assets as soon as you can, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because what ends up happening in hyperinflation, we've seen it many, many different times play out through, through history. When you have hyperinflation, three things get wiped out. Number one, savings get wiped out. People's income, when they're on fixed income, their earning power, their buying power gets wiped out. And then the third thing that gets wiped out is debt because the currency gets devalued. The fixed assets kind of remain the same. They're there. You know, a four-bedroom house with, you know, two bathrooms is, you know, still a four-bedroom house with two assets. It doesn't matter what's happening to the currency. It stays the same. A brick of gold is still a brick of gold before and after. So hard assets generally retain their value. They tend to go up in price and people think they're going up in value. They're not going up in value. What you're seeing is a reflection of the devaluation of the currency. Mm -hmm, exactly. But you just answered the next question I was going to have, which is what's the next bubble, but great. Before we go back to real estate, I want to get a little to the side because it's very important. What was your wife saying to you the moment you said, you know what, I'm going to go to real estate? That's a great question. And uh, she, she, she came with me to a few seminars, so she was able to participate in the process. It wasn't her passion, but she at least understood it. And she basically said, okay, Victor, you need to do this. You need, you know, if this is something you want to do, I support you. Make sure that we've got enough savings, you know, to withstand the, the drop in income. We thought we did. Turns out we didn't. So we spent, you know, several years burning through savings, hoping that the income would catch up. And, you know, my advice to the listeners, if you're thinking about making a career change, my advice to you is to hold on to your employment income as long as possible, even if it means taking a portion of your employment income and hiring somebody to work for you to do a lot of the work, a lot of the hands-on day-to-day work that you might consider to be your job, get someone else to do it, but hang on to that income as long as possible because you're going to go from Whatever your income is to zero overnight, and things always take longer than you might imagine for that income stream to get replaced. That is so true. And uh, yeah, because this podcast is about financial freedom. And I think it's those 
soft questions or hard questions really that nobody ever addresses you know they speak about passive income and all of that when it's really number one decision is to have your uh, significant other in line with you right or your chances are zero to go wherever you you want to go because getting there is really hard it's really hard it takes years the other thing is the the notion of passive income is a little bit of a misnomer because there is no such thing as a passive business even when you buy a piece of real estate it's still an active business now you can invest exactly <laughs> nobody ever says that and and that's something i really want to make a point with you right now victor there's not there's not such thing as passive health there's not such thing as passive income it's you're just kind of changing careers to something that creates a different kind of income right well, exactly. Now, you could invest passively in an active business, but there's still an underlying active business. So you can take your money, you can take $50,000 and you can hand it over to someone else that's managing the asset and they'll, man they'll mail you a check every month or every quarter. And that starts to look like mailbox money. It starts to look like passive income, but it's really a passive investment in an active business. It's not the same. Love it. Love it. So that gives us an introduction to when we met and what we started doing in Philadelphia. Can you explain us a little bit what, what, what is the Philadelphia concept? So I don't want to put it, make it specific to that market. The project that you and I were partnered on, what happened to be in Philadelphia, but this is a strategy that we developed in the Philadelphia market that frankly works pretty much anywhere. And that's a strategy that we call buy on the line, move the line. Now, that line is the line between the really hot, very fashionable neighborhood and you go a couple of blocks too far and you're in the ghetto, you're in the hood. And virtually every city in America, most cities around the world have that line. And if, for the listeners at home, wherever you may be sitting listening to this particular podcast, I'm sure you can imagine that line in your own home city. You go a little bit too far and all of a sudden, you know, the cars aren't as nice. There's uh, graffiti on the shop windows. Things change in a very, very short time span. And it's super obvious. It's you very can't tell. obvious. It's just, a, it's just a gut feeling, right? Exactly. You, you can feel it, right? Now, there's always ebbs and flows. There's, there's neighborhoods that come up. There's neighborhoods that go down. You want to figure out where that trend is. And you want to buy just on the wrong side of the line, on an area that is up and coming. So when you buy on the wrong side of the line, you can usually buy that property for pennies on the dollar. But then when you redevelop it, the only comparable properties are in the hot neighborhood next door. So what we did in Philadelphia, and we did this on well, over 80 properties, is we bought properties just on the wrong side of the line. And in this particular instance, there were a couple of different lines. And there was a line moving west from Temple University, and that line was moving at about a block a year. There's another line moving north from Center City. And so we managed to exploit this boundary and put a, bit, a little bit of scale behind it. Now, you've got to make sure that when you're trying to redevelop that line, that it is a movable line. Sometimes the line is a municipal boundary or a school district or a freeway or a railway line. Well, those are not going to move. But if the line is arbitrary, if the line is there for no particular reason, it can be moved. And oftentimes what will happen is people say, you know what, I'd love to live in the hot neighborhood, but I can't afford $2,000 a month. 
I'd love to, I'm willing to stay a block away from the really great neighborhood and pay only 1800 a month or 1600 a month and get a little bit of a discount. And I'm close enough to the great neighborhood and it's an up and coming area that I'm willing to live just a block away from the great neighborhood. And that's how you get those valuations. And what we found after having done this now, you know, a couple of dozen times is that you get valuations approaching the really hot neighborhood next door. Maybe not 100 cents on the dollar, but you get 97, 98 cents on the dollar in terms of the valuation of those new properties. And how much of a discount will you say you bought those same properties or ten cents, land? 10 cents ten, on the dollar. 10 cents on the dollar. Construction costs? Yeah. Now, obviously, over the years that we've been doing this now, we started in Philadelphia in 2011. We've done an awful lot of development over the years. And to be, to be frank, when we started, you could buy things for below construction costs. So it didn't make sense to build when we first started. What we did instead is we took buildings that were in very bad shape. We demolished the interior of the building, but we kept the exterior structure. So we kept the foundation, we kept the, the exterior structure. And we put a new building on the inside. So we're able to maintain some of the most expensive parts of the building and put a new building on the inside. And we we're able to make the numbers work doing it that way at the beginning. And then as prices came up, as values came up, we were able to start building brand new construction, even just from, va from, from vacant lots. And of course, construction costs have gone up. When we started you know, doing pure ground up new construction back in 2012, we were building for $88 a square foot. Today, pretty much most communities across the United States, you're building around $118 to $122 a square foot for wood frame stick-built construction. I'm not talking Class A. I'm talking about a Class B product that's, you know, good quality finishes, stainless steel appliances, granite countertops, hardwood flooring. So good quality product at around $118 to $120 a square foot. But in order for that to work, the rents had to come up because there's a big difference between $88 a square foot and $120 a square foot. That's almost a third more. So rents needed to come up by that or more in order for the numbers still to work. So the first thing there is stay away from C property? Absolutely. Right? Stay yeah. Now, I, know, I know people that like C properties and they've made money in C properties. I have never lost money in A class or B class, and I've only lost money in C class. And here's the reason why. The expenses don't care how much rent you're getting. So when your electric utility sends your electricity bill, they don't care whether you're getting 600 a month for rent or whether you're getting 2000 a month for rent, your electricity bill is gonna be exactly the same. It's just based on consumption. When your water heater dies, it doesn't care whether you're getting 600 a month in rent or whether you're getting 2000 a month in rent. It's gonna cost you $800 to replace that water heater. Doesn't matter what your rent was. And so what happens is in a C-class property, when your rents are so low, it's gonna take you, instead of it taking you a third of a month to buy back that new water heater, it's gonna take you two months to buy back that water heater. When your air conditioner dies, you know, you were in Phoenix, a new air conditioner is 3,500 bucks. If you're only getting 600 a month, it's going to take you six months to buy back that new air conditioner. Whereas if I'm getting, if I'm, you know, in, in a higher value property, maybe it takes me a month or two months to buy back that air conditioner. That's the difference. That is true. That is true. And I can also subscribe to that. I've only lost money in real estate when I went to C or um, low C. Mm -hmm. 
So you just explain us the concept that's really simple. You buy in the line and then move the line, right? Somehow. Exactly. Um, how long did it take you to, to learn? I mean, you learn the rest of your life, right? How to develop property the, uh, in a better way. But how, how long did it take you to be confident with the numbers? I think after we had done a couple of projects in a particular neighborhood, we knew we could see the value creation and we knew what the appraised value would be. So when we went to the bank on completion of the project to put the permanent financing in place, we were very confident in, in the way the bank would look at the project. And, and that gave us the confidence to simply multiply it. So, you know, it took us maybe a year or two of having gone through one or two cycles of that kind of development. Then once we had done that, we said, okay, we, we have a system here now. Now, the other thing that's very important, at least the way we do this, is not the only way to do it, but it's the way we approach it. Our goal is to hold the properties long-term. We're not in this to go and just flip an apartment building or something like that, although you, know, you can do that and you can make money. And why will that be? Well, whenever you go into an investment, you want an exit strategy, but there's more than one kind of exit. When you sell a property, that's usually a taxable event. Whereas if you create enough value that you can recover your initial investment in a refinance, a refinance is not a taxable event. So I'll give you a very simple example. Let's just imagine for a moment that you built a new apartment building for $700,000. And that apartment building, when it's all leased up, is worth a million dollars. You can go back to the bank and you can say, Mr. Banker, my building is worth a million dollars. I have paid 700000 to build it. That's including the land and all the construction and the architectural plans and everything. It cost me 700000 Would you be willing to refinance this property at 70% loan to value? Meaning I'm going to take this million dollar valuation and you give me back 700000 Most banks will say yes. So then at that point, you've recovered 100% of your initial investment. You've got no cash tied up in the property. You still have 30% equity, and the only money in the project is the bank's money, not yours. So you can return the money to your bank account, or you can return the money to your investors if you've got investors working with you. And guess what? The next thing they're going to say is, well, do you have another project for me? You can take that capital, you can redeploy it, and you can do it again. So that's the formula that we use Project after project, doesn't matter whether we're building a five-unit building, a 10-unit building, or a 200-unit complex. That's the math we use every single time. Perfect. Yes, I do want to uh, make a point to everybody listening. And I just, I just want people to realize how rich people think. I call them rich people. It's just more sophisticated people. They don't want to sell the asset because then you get taxed. And you may think tax... Tax, well, you get taxed. Well, tax is the biggest expense, expense in a human's, in a person's lifetime. So you really have to put an eye on it. And the longer you hold, the less risk you have, right? You don't have to be redeveloping land, fixing, flipping, because that, it's a lot of action. But at the end of the day, you turn back and you look at that, you'll find that, you know, most of it went to Uncle, uh, to, to Uncle Sam, but what? Could be taxes, right? That's what I mean. And what Victor is explaining right now is he went back to the bank, got all his money back in every project and then some, and had a free, free property and the renters are paying for the mortgage. And you probably also have some cash flow, right, Victor? Well, exactly. Exactly. In fact, the bank requires it. 
you have to have what's called a debt coverage ratio, which means that your profit has to be larger than the cost of servicing the debt, both principal and interest. So they want to see that margin, that profit margin. If they don't see that profit margin, they're not going to do the loan. So they design, they will work with you to design the project in such a way that you're guaranteed to have a certain minimum profit margin. And uh, when you do, what happens is if you're professional about the way you manage your properties and you're increasing the rent appropriately every year, might be 3%, 4%, whatever it is with inflation, your expenses are going up with inflation. Your expenses go up, let's say, by 3 or 4%, and the rents are going up by 3 or 4%, but your, your debt stays fixed. That's the same. That doesn't change. If you're paying 1000 a month for your loan payment, you're paying 1000 a month in year one, and you're paying 1000 a month in year 25 of the loan. That doesn't change. So the rent increase actually increases the profit margin year over year because the expenses are only a small percentage of the total cost of carrying that property. So your profit margins increase over time. And when that happens, so does the value of the property. And, and that's the beauty. That's the exactly. beauty. The value exactly. increases. You just explain why rich, why rich people become richer, right? Just exactly. have to buy and hold long term. If you know what you're doing, that's the way to become rich. It's not like taking a lot of action every day, trying to fix and flip properties. It's just buying and holding and getting the next one, getting the next one, getting the next one. That's super interesting. How do you, uh, but there's a very important key here. How do you go back to the bank? Because the Wells Fargo's were not, will not like these deals or maybe they're not looking into this. What I have found as a developer is that if you are not creating a relationship with a small bank, you're simply not gonna, they're not gonna understand what you're trying to do. What I've found is that every single form of capital, it doesn't matter whether it's bank capital, investor capital, has a particular formula that they're looking for. And so you've got to know going in, is this a formula that's going to work? Is there a fit? Some banks do construction loans. Others don't. You know, some of the major banks are very conservative because they simply can't take the time to investigate local markets and become experts in local markets. But a local mar a local bank can. If a local bank has three or five branches and they happen to be based in Philadelphia or New York or Chicago or wherever they may be and they know that market, they're going to be more comfortable with doing a project in that market because they know the market. They'll be able to tell you, no, this neighborhood's good. No, I won't touch that other neighborhood. They'll, they'll have lending criteria almost by zip code, but whereas a national player like a Wells Fargo or Bank of America simply can't. They, they create uniform policy and they apply it universally across their entire ecosystem. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Iowa or California, the rules are the same. And, and that's why the big banks are a little bit more difficult to work with. That is true. Very good, Victor. I, I am very conscious of your time. I do respect your time. So I want to finish this show today. Well, everybody just found how you can create infinite rates of return every two years, probably. I think that's a great episode. Uh, what would you say to somebody that's hearing these concepts for the first time, thinking about, you know, I want to financial independence or change the source of income? What would you say to them? I'd really, uh, a couple of things. I mean, what I've discovered in life is it doesn't matter what it is that you want to do. You really need three things to accomplish that. Number one, 
you need the knowledge. And you're listening to this podcast, you're getting some knowledge, you're getting some information, and that's great, but I've got bad news for you, it's not enough. So, But it's essential, you've got to have it. So you need, number one, the knowledge. Number two, you need the emotional drive to make that thing happen. And connected with that, you've got to eliminate whatever emotional obstacles are getting in your way. And then number three, and this is the most important and also the most overlooked, is you've got to be in the right environment. So if you want to become a real estate investor, you want to become a real estate developer, you got to go hang out with other real estate investors. Go hang out with other real estate developers and spend quality time with them. Because once you become immersed in that environment, everything that seems foreign to you now after a period of time will seem natural and normal and routine. And once you're in that environment, everything becomes visible, everything becomes clear. And there's a reason why the top figure skaters in the world, when they compete for the Olympics, they don't train in their home country. They train in one of two skating rinks, one in Montreal and one in Barrie, Ontario. It doesn't matter if you're from Japan or Russia, they all, com- they all train together, even though they compete, they all train together at a couple of different skating rinks. And it's in, by getting yourself in that environment that you become excellent at what you do. So it doesn't matter whether you want to go and become a figure skater, you want to become a real estate investor, you want to become a cyclist, whatever, get in that environment. Perfect. Thank you so much. And Victor, finally, where can they find you? You can reach me at victorjm.com. So that's my website. Very simple, victorjm.com. And I have the Real Estate Espresso podcast, a daily show seven days a week. It's available on 20 different platforms, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or Stitcher, lots of different platforms. So wherever you listen to podcasts on either Apple, Android, Mac, or Windows, you'll be able to find it. The Real Estate Espresso Podcast, spelt like the Italian coffee, Espresso, E-S-P-R-E-S-S-O. Perfect. And I really recommend it's the best podcast on real estate I can suggest to anybody. Thank you so much for your time, Victor. Thank you, Nick. Did you learn something today? How can you apply your insights? What's next for you? The fastest way to make things happen is to just share this podcast episode with more people that may find it valuable too. talk about it with them and surround yourself with like-minded people. Hope you found this valuable. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.